Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the RR Show, the best show on the internet. This is episode 218, and once again, we're trying something a little new, a little different. I don't know about you guys, but I love the horror. I love the spoopy. I like the uh, creepy pastas. And so this one I'm pretty excited about because today we're diving into a subreddit we've never been to before, boldly going where no podcast has been before. Today we're going to r slash unresolved mysteries. So this is going to be good. Our first story today is from Glitter Cheese. The table was set, but no one was there. Five people who vanished while cooking. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When someone disappears mysteriously, those left behind are often shocked and confused. Particularly baffling are disappearances where it appears as if the missing person suddenly vanished in the midst of their daily activities. When someone disappears in the middle of making something to eat, the effect can be particularly jarring. The table is set, but no one is there. In this write-up, I will explore the disappearance of five people who went missing while cooking. Although the clues left behind and the exact circumstances of each of these cases vary, all of them share the same sense of eerie abruptness. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on these cases as well as any other similar cases you may know of. Stephanie Stewart In the summer of 2006, Stephanie Stewart, 70, worked as a fire spotter for Alberta, Canada's Sustainable Resource Development Department. Fire spotters are also known as lookout observers. During the wildfire season, generally April to September, although it varies, fire spotters live full-time in cabins located next to observation towers or lookouts. Their primary priority is to monitor for any sign of wildfire, particularly smoke. Other duties include reporting local weather conditions several times a day, monitoring and recording radio relay transmissions from other nearby workers, and maintaining all buildings and outbuildings on the property. The job is known for being physically and mentally taxing, as well as isolating. Many lookout towers are in incredibly remote areas, some requiring workers as well as food and other supplies to be transported to the site by helicopter. Stewart was an accomplished outdoorswoman who had previously climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and bicycled across Canada solo. She was also an experienced fire spotter with 18 years prior experience in the position. During the summer of 2006, Stewart was stationed at the remote Athabasca Lookout Tower, Twelve of Stuart's 18 years working as a fire spotter had been at Athabasca Lookout. She spent her downtime at the lookout gardening, painting, embroidering, and reading. On August 26, 2006, Stuart's co-workers became concerned when she did not call in the morning weather report as expected. After trying to reach her several times, without success, a colleague was dispatched to her cabin at the Athabasca Lookout. The scene that was discovered there 
remains shocking and baffling to this day. It was clear that a struggle had occurred. There was a smear of blood on the stairs leading into the cabin. Inside the cabin was a state of disarray. On the stove, a pot of water was boiling. Missing from the cabin were several blankets, a pillow, a gold lady's watch. Stephanie was nowhere to be found on the lookout grounds. Authorities were immediately contacted and extensive search and rescue efforts were performed in the wilderness surrounding the Athabasca lookout, with no results. Authorities have stated that they do not believe Stuart fell victim to an animal attack. Her death has been ruled a homicide, and law enforcement seems sure it was foul play. At this time, no further information about Stephanie Stewart's disappearance has emerged. What could have happened to her? Whatever it was, it happened so quickly that the water was still boiling on the stove when her co-worker arrived to check on her. Scott and Amy Fandle Scott, age 30, and Amy, age 8, were siblings, living with their mother, Margaret, in Sterling, Alaska. On the evening of September 4, 1978, Scott, Amy, Margaret, and Margaret's sister, Kathy, who was visiting from out of town, went out to eat at a Sterling Bar restaurant called Good Time Charlie's. At around 10 p.m., Margaret and Kathy dropped the children off at home and returned to Good Time Charlie's to have some drinks. After returning home, the children visited their next-door neighbors, the Luptons, with whose children they frequently played. The last confirmed sighting of the siblings was of them walking to their cabin from the Lupton home. At around 11.45, a passerby noted lights on within Fandle cabin. The next morning, September 5th, Margaret and Kathy returned to the cabin between 2 to 3 a.m. to a mysterious scene. The cabin was dark, which was unusual, as the children were afraid of the dark. On the kitchen counter was an open can of tomatoes. On the stove was a pot of boiling water. Macaroni with tomatoes was a snack that Scott commonly ate before bed. Scott and Amy were nowhere to be found within the house. Despite the strange scene, perhaps chalking it up to childhood forgetfulness or excitement, Margaret and Kathy assumed that Scott and Amy were spending the night next door at the Lupton's and both went to bed. Later that morning, Margaret awakened and left for work at around 8.30am. Although she still hadn't seen Scott and Amy, she believed the children had followed their usual routine and had already left for school. At some point, Margaret attempted to call Amy at school, but was told that Amy hadn't arrived for school that day. However, Margaret's boss prevented Margaret from leaving work to investigate the absence further. At around noon, the kid's aunt, Kathy, woke. She too believed the children were at school, and as such was not alarmed to find them not at home. It wasn't until later that afternoon, after the school day had ended, that Margaret and Kathy became aware that anything was amiss. The Lupton children from next door visited the Fandle home, wondering why Scott and Amy hadn't attended school that day. Kathy, confused, called Margaret at work and notified her of the children's absence from school. A frantic Margaret immediately notified the police that the children were missing. Immediately after learning of the children's disappearance, Margaret tried to reach Amy's father, Roger, who had left about nine months prior, but was unable to. At the time, she did speak with some of Roger's relatives, who reported that he had no idea where the kids were. 
Soon after, Roger arrived in Alaska to assist in search efforts for Scott and Amy. While investigating the children's disappearance, police found several bullet casings outside the Fandel's cabin. However, police were unsure if the casings were related to the disappearance. Years later, Roger's former girlfriend from at the time of the disappearance offered to reveal Scott and Amy's fate to Roger's uncle at the cost of $5,000. As far as I can tell, nothing ever came of this. Although Roger was considered a suspect for many years, he's no longer suspected to be involved by police. David Glenn Lewis Attorney and former judge David Glenn Lewis, 39, of Amarillo, Texas, disappeared on Super Bowl Sunday 1993 amidst mysterious circumstances. Thursday, January 28th, Lewis left work early at around noon, bought gas using his credit card and later taught a college course until 10pm. His wife and daughter left for a shopping trip to Dallas, Texas, to last until January 31st. They don't see him at home before they depart for Dallas due to scheduling conflicts. Friday, January 29th, David was seen at Amarillo Airport by a friend who stated that the luggage Les Lewis was rushing through the Southwest Airlines terminal. Additionally, at 10.30pm, a police officer noticed a red Ford Explorer, the same make, model and color of David's car, parked outside the Potter County Courthouse in downtown Amarillo. Saturday, January 30th, a $5,000 deposit was made into the Lewis's joint bank account. David's red Ford Explorer was seen by a neighbor parked in the driveway of the Lewis home. The red Ford Explorer, seen the previous evening by the police officer, was no longer downtown at the court building. January 30th also marks the last confirmed sighting of David Glenn Lewis, although the exact circumstances of this sighting have not been made publicly available. Sunday the 31st was Super Bowl Sunday. David's wife and daughter returned home from their shopping trip to Dallas as planned. But what they found baffled them. They could find no sign of David himself in the house and his red Ford Explorer was not there either. However, it appeared as if he had just recently left quite suddenly. In the fridge were freshly prepared turkey sandwiches. Additionally, the Lewis's VCR had recorded the Super Bowl game starting at 5.15pm that day. Starting the VCR recording would have required someone to be present in the home, as the Lewises did not have a VCR with a programmable timer that could be set ahead of time. The VCR recording was never stopped after the game, however, and had continued recording until the tape ended. David's wife and daughter also found laundry in the dryer and his watch and wedding ring sitting on the kitchen counter. Unbeknownst to David's family earlier that day, David's Ford Explorer had been spotted parked outside the Potter County Courthouse in Amarillo, Texas. The morning of January 31st, a sheriff's deputy noted the car as well as a man resembling David across the street from the court building, taking photos of the red Ford Explorer. However, this information did not come to light until police began investigating David's disappearance. Despite the strange circumstances, David's wife assumed he was simply working late and was not overly worried. However, the next day, Monday, February 1st, David's wife became alarmed when she still hadn't heard from him and he missed multiple work appointments. She reported David missing to the police. While investigating David's disappearance, police uncovered several odd clues. The same day he was reported missing, some 350 miles away from Amarillo, 
A Dallas cab driver had taken a fare resembling David from a Dallas hotel to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. The driver reported the man appeared nervous and agitated and fumbled to pay for his fare from a wad of $100 bills. The next day, Tuesday, February 2nd, police identified David's car parked outside the Potter County Courthouse in Amarillo, Texas. His house and car keys were under the floor mat. David's driver's license, checkbook, and credit cards were found in the car, which is where David normally kept them. Police also discovered that David had purchased two plane tickets prior to his disappearance. The first ticket was for a flight from Dallas to Amarillo and was purchased on Super Bowl Sunday, January 31st. The second ticket was purchased the following day, February 1st, for a flight from Los Angeles to Dallas. Despite these odd circumstances, David's case went cold for over 10 years until 2004, when a sharp-eyed and resourceful police investigator put some seemingly unrelated puzzle pieces together. In 2004, Washington State Police Detective Pat Ditter read a local newspaper series that profiled, in part, the unreliability of law enforcement databases in helping to identify John Doe's. Ditter zeroed in on a fatal hit-and-run from 93. On February 1, 1993, the same day that David had been reported missing in Texas around 10.30 p.m., motorists on RTE 24 in Yakima County, Washington State, noticed a person in the road. By the time the motorist had turned around to warn oncoming drivers, the man had been struck dead in a hit-and-run. Some reports noted a Chevrolet Camaro speeding away from the accident scene. The driver had never been identified. An autopsy performed on the John Doe revealed that he was not intoxicated at the time of his death. Ditter realized the description of the John Doe matched the missing person profile for David Glenn Lewis. Despite the 1,500-mile difference in location, Ditter thought the John Doe could be a good match with David's missing persons profile. This prompted a DNA inquiry, which revealed that the John Doe killed on February 1st by a hit-and-run motorist in Yakima County, Washington, was indeed David Glenn Lewis, reported missing by his wife the same day in Amarillo, Texas. The DNA match answered only one part of the mystery of David's disappearance. How and why David wound up in Yakima County, Washington from Amarillo, Texas, and who was the driver in the fatal hit-and-run that killed David, these questions remain to be answered to this day. Brenda Heist The final case I'll be discussing has a different outcome from the previous three cases in this write-up. In 2002, a Pennsylvania woman named Brenda Heist went missing suddenly one day after dropping her 9- and 11-year-old children off at school. Heist had been experiencing multiple life stresses such as a divorce, and had recently been turned down for financial housing assistance. The day she disappeared, loved ones discovered a turkey defrosting on the kitchen counter for dinner that night, and a load of laundry halfway done. Friends and family were insistent that Brenda never would have left her children voluntarily. That and the abruptness of her disappearance indicate that she must have been a victim of foul play at the hands of her ex-husband or another predator. It appeared to everyone that Heist had disappeared without a trace. Her car was found in a neighboring county, but no further leads emerged. Suspicion fell to Brenda's husband, Lee Heist, who was eventually cleared by law enforcement. In the meantime, Lee and the children struggled financially and even lost their house. He raised their now-adult children, 
although he continued to live under a cloud of suspicion within the community. Lee had Brenda declared legally dead in 2010 and has since remarried. Shockingly, in 2013, Heist reappeared. She turned herself into the sheriff's department in Key Largo, Florida, and informed them that she was a missing person. As it turns out, on the day of her disappearance in 2002, Heist had stopped at a local park after dropping her children off at school. She struck up a conversation with several people at the park who had noticed she was sobbing and who then invited her to join them as they hitchhiked around the country. On a whim, Heist had decided to join them. Since then, she'd been living a vagrant lifestyle, panhandling, hitchhiking and living under bridges and in tent cities, and had recently been arrested under a false name. Heist's confession brought an end to her missing persons case, which had gone cold in the ensuing years. Exploring missing persons cases, we often think that the best possible outcome is for the missing individual to be found alive, having left of their own volition, as opposed to foul play. Yet, despite this outcome in Brenda's case, her story doesn't exactly have a happy ending. Brenda's relationship with her children, now adults, is strained. Lee Heist is angry at his ex-wife for the financial and emotional turmoil she caused in his and their children's lives. Brenda feels a great deal of shame and remorse for her actions, according to a Pennsylvania detective who interviewed her after her reappearance. But she has a long way to go to make things right. In addition to the immense personal and emotional consequences, it's not the most inconsequential fact that she is considered legally deceased. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do, too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky.